crash. The sound of shattered glass, screams of horror, and of anger, heart racing, panic. And you hear in the dead of night, stay calm, pack your things, we've got to go. I imagine that, although this is more modern than maybe a description of what actually happened, there is a serious situation that has just come across. We've gone through a a nine-part series just a couple weeks ago on Acts chapter 7. Hear this wonderfully amazing speech from Stephen about the redemption and all of it pointing towards Christ. And we looked at that in depth. But now at the end of that account, we jump in again after his stoning. Uh, A huge turning point in the church in Jerusalem in both their experience and in the book of Acts. Things are going to change. Um, And so there is this really big and intense thing that happens. And so we should think of these, these pictures, broken glass, having to pack all of your things and maybe not coming back to your house for a while. We notice that at the beginning of this, although we see Saul, I'm not going to focus too much on Saul today. That is the Apostle Paul, as he later <clears throat> is, is called. But here, what arises after that situation is a great, <laughs> I love the, the word in Greek, it's, it's mega, <laughs> mega persecution in the church. Everybody, in, in fact, we see here, and I missed it actually when I was translating this week. It says there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they all were scattered throughout the regions except the apostles. So there, there's only a handful of people left. It, it's hard really to compare this to anything that had happened. Right now we've seen a couple things that were tumultuous. There was the supernatural killing of Ananias and Sapphira uh, for their deviancy to the word of God and their hypocrisy. And that brought fear upon all the people. But this is a big one. This changes everything. We see that even up leading up to this, the reason Stephen was preaching is because the church was well known for teaching that the destruction of Jerusalem was coming. There would be a hardening of the Jews and, and therefore in 70 AD, the temple would fall. That, that is indeed what Christ prophesied in Matthew 24. And so they were expecting things like this, but here it comes all of a sudden, great persecution. And although <clears throat> when persecution comes and the word of God from Stephen and from the church is so clear and proclaimed, these promises from the Old Testament are being fulfilled. <clears throat> there is a real sense in which the hardness of heart that we see is inexplicable. It's, it's amazing, in fact. We, we know what it comes from. We, we know that man's will is bound in sin and in the fastest of night, as we sing sometimes. And Yet, there are real, natural, easy reasons to see why this, is, is, this persecution has come. I remind you that in chapter 6, 8 
through 7.1, you see that this is done in the midst of the Sanhedrin. That means the, the high priest is there. He's the one who asked the question before Stephen's speech. All the elders of Israel are there. That, that means that this per- persecution, <clears throat> Stephen's murder, his, his unjust execution, was like the, the break in the dam that lets it open. What had happened is this persecution flowed from the Supreme Court of Israel, as it were. So if you know, as those who are hostile, angry about the proclamation of the church, and you have just seen an unjust killing, and it has come from a, a group of the rulers of Israel who are willing to turn a blind eye to that sin. <laughs> and you know you're not going to be punished for it. Well, it, it is no, no wonder that there is a great persecution that comes upon the church. There is an easy natural reason for this that happens Uh, As we know in our day, our governing authorities have done the same exact thing. There has been a denigration in California of laws regarding shoplifting so that it's about, I think the threshold, like $950. So it's it's a common occurrence now to go to Target or something like that and see somebody straw out with a $500 bike because, you know, you'll get in trouble if you try to stop them. Well, when this is the case, when people know that there are no penalties, really, for these crimes, what's to deter them in doing it? So this is what causes the zealous Apostle Paul to rise in what we will see in his persecution later. Not only is this going to happen on a, on a mass scale, but we also are going to see the, the chief priests actually sanctioning these things later. Christians, in our day, uh, we, we need to not look to, to the world, but we, uh, to, to stop uh, moral iniquity. Uh, Christians need to take some of the blame for not promoting a, a view of reality that says <clears throat> that a holy and righteous endeavor is to be in political office. We, we should probably hear that more. More Christians should think, I want to do something about society. I should get involved in government. More of us should probably say, man, our city's not doing so well. We should take responsibility for that and make sure to turn it around the right way for righteousness and justice. We, we bear some of the blame in, in regards to our current society. Some of us are, are guilty of not being salt and light in our culture. That's why it turns bad, because the salt is supposed to, uh, when wounds are open, supposed to hurt a little bit, and light is to shine in the darkness such that it's scared to come out of its closet, as it were. Um, we should be active and vocal in our all, all public places about the truth of the gospel. Um, but if you're going to get fired, make sure you don't do it foolishly. <laughs> have a backup plan. <laughs> you, you should remain in the place that you have. And I'm not talking about not being diplomatic or something like that. But we should be active and vocal. We should be known as Christians and those who are uh, aligned with the causes of justice and righteousness. Now, 
another application that we can have from this particular text is that there is a type of political corruption that warrants and causes the church and, and warrants fleeing, leaving, being gone. In fact, it is striking to think about where this comes. It's not like just in the very few days where there's 120. It says the whole church left. We already came across two different scriptures that gave us numbers. First day, 3,000 men. Not, not necessarily just not women and children too. They're not being counted. 3,000 men, and then I think it's in Acts, let's see here, Acts 4, after that, we're told that another five, the the number of men in that case had come to 5,000. So if you put those together, you have a lot of people. You have maybe 10,000 plus people, all of them of which persecution has got so bad, they, they leave Jerusalem. This is a staggering reality. It'd be, I've seen in the last couple of years, there's a, a pastor from SoCal who took about 20 adults to Texas and they replanted a church there. And I'm like, wow, what a thing. This is even bigger than that. I can't imagine a, a time where it got so bad that literally our church, that church, that church, all the churches around here unanimously left, no longer in the place. That, that is a huge precedent for us to be able to say there is a time and a place that in order to be faithful to the Lord and to fight another day, you might have to flee. So, for example, if you are not giving, uh, you are not able to take care of, of your children or you are forced to uh, do those things which... <clears throat> maybe you thought it the best and most faithful for um, your wife to be home and raising the kids and homeschooling and all that, and you were no longer able to homeschool because of particular regulations that happen uh, in our day. And the, the right thing, even if you don't know necessarily what you're going to do, would be to flee. You have to go. You have to be faithful to the call that God has made you, or, or if you're a man and, and all the jobs have dried up because they're being strangled out by, by governmental overreach, you got to go and, and you, you have to do your duty to provide for your family. There's, no, there's an obligation that you can't avoid. You must do those things. And I pray that that doesn't happen in California. I know that California will be Christ. I just don't know if it'll be in this generation. But those who stay and those who are here and live here, we ought to be like those in the days of Nehemiah who, when they're rebuilding the wall, they had a sword strapped on their side while they're swinging the hammer to build. You have to be vigilant in our day and age, especially in California or many other states at this point. We must be those who war and find ourselves in, in good, godly, cultural fights, as well as, as building. There's a lot to do here, because there's lots of places where persecution can arise. Now, this seems like a little bit of a break. This is just verse 2. Remember, this flows from the text, and I think it's particularly important in, in today's date. So, just... Put a pin in what we're talking about. And this isn't a sidebar. This is just what it says. And we should reflect on this. This is a burial in verse 2. Stephen just got stoned. Now it says, devout men buried Stephen. 
and made great lamentation over him. Now, sadly, most Christians in our day give little thought to their death and their burial in the normal course of life. And so, therefore, we need to learn a few significant... There's three things that are said in this really short text that I think are extremely instructive. We, we should come to this text and say, what, what significant things do I need to learn so that I might be prepared for my loved ones or, or my burial and my death when it happens? So here's a, here's a few reflections. First, we see that it was Stephen who was buried. I make this point because of what I hear in the church and in the culture at large, mainly that the scriptures do not locate personhood only to the soul. Your, your body is you. We, in our day and age, hear things like when somebody has their mom, their family members die, they say, oh, it's just a shell. No, no, that's, that's your loved one, whatever their name is. Their integrity, their imaging God is vested in their bodies, not just their soul. You are not... As it said, a soul in a body in the sense that your soul is the main thing and your body is tangential. No, 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 no. Your, both of them are who you are. In fact, in the resurrection, you will uh, have this glorious transformation and glorious reunion, making you fully you again. <laughs> in a sense, when you go to be with Christ, you're a little bit less you because your body is not attached there. But the resurrection puts you back together the way it's supposed to be. Fully redeems you in body and soul. That's why the Apostles' Creed says we believe in the bodily resurrection. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. There's a lot vested in that. The Greeks, in fact, we'll see later, the Greeks laugh at at the Apostle Paul once he brings up the resurrection. Because they think that's foolish. The body is this lesser thing. But we need to say that, no, it is valuable. It's image of God. If the brain is not functioning or there is uh, somebody in a catatonic state, are they less valuable? Because their soul is not operating, their internal life is not operating the same way? No, their body, even in that state, is, is worthy of being called who they are. That's a central part of you. In fact, I hate to say it. I don't know if some of you look in the mirror and you go, Man, I wish I had some different, like, more beard coverage here for me or something like that. You, you, you wish there was an augment in how you looked or something like that. I'm sorry. This is the exact body you will have in the resurrection. You'll always look the same. <laughs> Fred will always look like Fred. When you see me in, in the new heavens and new earth, you're going to go like, hey, that's Fred. I, I'm going to be the same that way. Or we're not all going to change into some weird amorphous thing. I, all, all we need to know is that the body is extremely important. Personhood is related to the body. And I, I mentioned this before, but I just want to say it again. is the, the, the London Baptist Confession, wonderfully in the section on, on death and the resurrection, the life hereafter, it talks about even as we are with Christ before the resurrection, 
immediately in his presence, which is better than now, right? There's a better, and then there's the best, is the resurrection. It says in that intermediate time, when we're disembodied and our bodies in the grave, our bodies are still united to Christ. And this is a glorious reality. We, we must be fully Christian here, uh, not, not embracing uh, a degradation of, of body, but body and soul together are a person so that after death, they can still be called who they are. It's still them. Now, also, just a brief note, devout men. So Stephen is buried. It's devout men who buried him. It's it's godly men who took up the responsibility to take their stoned, bloodied, bruised brother, wrap him up in in a cloth, I presume, easier to carry that way. Maybe not. But wrapped him up and... Uh, dug a grave, laid him to rest, covered him over. Maybe, I don't know if they put uh, uh, some sort of monument, something to indicate that that there was a grave. I don't know. But as we think about mortuaries, I worked for one for a year. We should not think of these as some ordinary transaction. We should think of the, the same sort of care that is given before death by nurses and and doctors after death. Godly men, actually, I worked for a couple of them. Godly men, actually, uh, in the severest, saddest of times, care for those loved ones we have that have been lost, both our neighbors and our friends. <clears throat> in, in tough times, even when the body's been broken, the spirit's been removed from the body for a time. Devout men do that. Lastly, something that I'd love to recover. They, these devout men, were manly. I'm sure they didn't cry at everything. But here, they made loud, they made great lamentation over Stephen. I think we must recover in the church the sadness of death. Actually, it's sort of a pet peeve of mine to call it a celebration of life. Because it sort of strips it or whitewashes the fact that we should be sad. This is a sad thing. In fact, it's so sad and such a serious enemy that Christ will leave it not to, not to anybody else, but by his very own appearing, slay death himself. He has a, a personal vendetta, as it were, against death. So that 1 Corinthians 15 says, The last enemy to be destroyed by Christ, is death. He will do it himself. So death, whenever it comes upon us, still should be seen as a cause for great lamentation, great sadness, even though there is the sunrise of hope that is dawned in the gospel, in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself likens John the Baptist to a funeral dirge. I'm sure something he was used to. And we also have a whole book dedicated to lamentation. Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations, Prophetic Lamentations. It is a natural and necessary part of our life to recognize, what else do you do when your child dies? Words sometimes are not enough. Sometimes you need some poetic lamentation for such a case as this. Or where a murder of your friend takes place. I don't know if they would have sang a song. Maybe they would have. There's a number of them. I just ran across a really good one in Ezekiel the other day. 
But as the as governments oppress its citizenry and people are murdered and, and children die, uh, we need to not only sing songs of joyous praise, but even in the midst of the church, very often we should sing songs, sad songs of lament, uh, never without the hope of the gospel, since it is the case that all of our laments uh, will be redeemed one day. But while it happens, it still is supposed to sting a little bit in that sense. Now, third point here, Saul has a notorious history and it just peeks up onto the scene. Verse three reads, but Saul was ravaging the church and and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. Now, <clears throat> I won't say much, but it, it, though I can hear many voices in my head that might object to this, when you really truly study the Bible, it is relentlessly committed to justice. It is relentlessly committed to uh, the, the cause of um, equality not not an equality of outcome like people want to say in our day but but equality before the law which is the christian virtue psalm 97 2 reads righteousness and justice are the foundation of god's throne and here one of the things that it tells us that is a serious cause in a in a a a dastardly sin is that (laughs) There's an unjust imprisonment. That's what he's doing. He's breaking the ninth commandment. So <clears throat> although uh, I, I can go on Twitter these days and find this happening all over the place. People being unjustly cuffed and thrown into prison for a time. Uh, uh, I saw one just the other day. There's a, a man just, just preaching at a, at a public uh, drag queen event and the the young man goes goes gets thrown in the slammer for for public (laughs) for free speech so so this is the same kind of category these christians are speaking the message of the gospel and for that they are being thrown into prison Uh, this is not a small thing but a large thing and so the what is called out is a great sin here in this case is something that Sadly, we find a little bit more common in our day. But our society at one time in the past, heavily influenced and uh, by biblical law, regarded the ninth commandment very seriously. Uh, in every church and every courthouse, pretty much, you would have the, the listing of the Ten Commandments everywhere. You actually have uh, people swearing an oath to this day on the blessings and cursings in Deuteronomy. Uh, in saying, I will be truthful, swearing upon a higher law than themselves. And what is required in an implication of this biblical teaching is that the, the ninth commandment, which is so serious in the minds of, of the Christian worldview, is that the outflow of requiring truth between peoples means that everybody deserves a fair trial. No one is to be locked up unjustly. And not able to say their side. We'll, we'll see more of this later in Paul. I just emphasize that the Bible very 
takes very seriously the, the law of God summarized in the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> I must also say that the, the pagan or the atheistic worldview that you and I bump into constantly has, has, has no regard for truth at all in, in this sense. There, there's, no, um, there's no inherent right to have a good name. Uh, to be considered upon what you've done and to be treated truthfully. People can slander you, and, and that's okay because truth is not the ultimate, right? And so let us just know that these things flow from Christ and the worldview. Now, <clears throat> this is the last section. Um, and what I'd like to do is I'd like to read verse 4 through 8 and and show just one major thing. <clears throat> Whenever we read, especially a larger book like this, a narrative, Luke and other authors of, of the Gospels um, will, even this happens all throughout the Old Testament as well, will have sort of uh, places where they, they pick up and summarize things in a way so as to bring you to the major theme of the book. So, so they're bringing you to some of the initial statements that have been said and saying, okay, here's how you should understand the whole theme of this book. How, here's how you're to understand all of Acts together as one seamless story. There is a, there's a, a relentless theme that'll keep coming up. And I want to show you that because you may not have, have caught it when I read it. So first, what I want to do is read verse 1. And then I want to pick up and read verse 4 through 8. So verse 1, it says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered, catch this phrase, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Now verse 4, Now those who were scattered went preaching the word, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Now, I really could do a whole sermon on this section, but I want to just draw out a couple things. I'm not going to touch everything here, but I want to connect the dots for us. Um, some of the key words that you should have heard will hearken you back to a, a place that I hope you have starred in Acts. This is chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 1 through through uh, Jesus ascending up into heaven should be firmly fixed in your mind all the way through Acts. So if you, if you haven't uh, done this already and it's not fresh in your mind, you don't know it just by the verse reference, I encourage you, go read this 25 times. I have an app called Dwell and it reads to me the scripture. Go, go set a parameter and say, hey, read to me 1 through 11 and listen to it 100 times. Because in order to understand Acts and to hear the... Re- the repetition of the major themes, you need to know this section, okay? So what you should have heard is Jesus uh, in this section says, but you, speaking to the apostles at this point, and those gathered there, 
will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what will you do? Because you've received power, here's what you're going to do. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, wherever we just arrived, and even to the ends of the earth. So in this section, what we see is there is a, the whole book is about the, the pushing forward of the prophetic witness of the church to who Christ is. Not, not prophetically in the future, mainly, although that's the case there. But they're mainly pointing back to how he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And he has, as Jesus was talking about with them for 40 days, he has brought the kingdom to earth. And though it started as small as a mustard seed, it will grow and grow and grow until all the birds of the air can nest in its branches in fulfillment of Ezekiel. Now, <clears throat> the prophetic witness of the church about the gospel of Christ and his kingdom. That's, that's the message of Acts. But what you see here is that <clears throat> although they are going to obey this command, they didn't do it of their own accord. This is the other major theme. Although it's pushing forward the prophetic ministry uh, or uh, prophetic witness of the church and the church is going out and proclaiming Christ, sometimes it it becomes very clear that the only way they're going to do that successfully is if this is an undertaking of God. Let me just remind you of a couple things. So first of all, Jesus commands it. They hadn't done it quite yet. They hadn't gone anywhere. They're located in Jerusalem. So God providentially brings about persecution. You ain't staying here. Get on to it. (laughs) He's the one who is propelling the mission forward. They end up in Judea and Samaria to preach the gospel because, well, that was the plan of God. And they might have been a little sluggish. I don't know. But regardless, this is the providence of God pushing forward the word. You'll see it again and again if you listen to it or read through Acts. You'll hear about the word progressing over and over and over again. And how? Well, it is the power of God's providential work in the world. Remember what Gamaliel said just a couple chapters ago. Gamaliel, uh, Luke said through Gamaliel, This plan and undertaking is of God, so no one is going to be able to overthrow it. And actually, in fact, all those who come against it will be fighting themselves against God. Therefore, the word will continue to go forth, and this persecution ultimately is decreed by God himself. And it is so that he will accomplish his plans. He has not left his plans in the hands of, of man ultimately. We're we are responsible to be faithful. We must go forward and preach the word. However, God has left it under his sovereign power and will accomplish his own plans. And uh, I, I bring uh, uh, Calvin and <clears throat> the Genevan Catechism. He, he didn't do a major update, but I've been reading through some historic confession, confessions and catechisms and <clears throat> before the the major catechism that we have been uh doing in service for a long time there were catechisms before they're not all most of them aren't question and answers but the Genevan catechism has one and it has a, a potent and wonderfully illuminating statement that is totally applicable here what are you seeing in acts and and what are we seeing concerning the will of god 
almighty will of God. <clears throat> the question is asked in question 28, but what about the wicked, what about of wicked men and devils? Are they also subject to him, subject to God? Although he does not guide them by his Holy Spirit, never, nevertheless, he curbs them by his power so that they cannot budge unless he permits them. He even constrains them to execute his will although it is against their intention and purpose. You can hear Genesis in your mind there with Joseph's brothers. This is the exact thing also that was prayed by the church, although sinfully Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jews, and the Gentiles all came together against the Lord's anointed, according to Psalm 2. Uh, It is God who predestined all these things to take place such that he might have the victory. So the two major themes of Acts is the word is, is preached about Christ and, and the word goes uh, uh, forth um, prophetically and unstoppably by the providence of God. <clears throat> That's a major theme. Now there's also something that after you have the major themes down, Acts chapter 2 calls about what is what has happened in the spirit <clears throat> and we come across it here about signs and and wonders. And and largely how you interpret this um we could talk about it for multiple Sundays and I've already done some of the preliminary work so I'm going to just tell you again some of the key pieces. I would like you to have two, two key things in your mind when we come across miracles and signs in Acts, uh, and I want to put them in their proper place. So we see that uh, the main focus is on the preaching of Christ and God promoting his word, and to attend to those things, we see in Acts chapter 2 that often we see very uh, supernatural things happening, such as Peter's shadow going by, people getting healed. It's never happened to me yet, <laughs> and nor do I expect it to. That is because uh, Acts chapter 2 makes really clear uh, this section. I want to read to you in this section, and you can go here if you'd like. Some of you will be very familiar. Acts chapter 2, verse 17 and following. This is the day of Pentecost. The Spirit falls and people are prophesying, not foretelling the future. What they're actually doing is they're proclaiming the mighty works of God. They're speaking about wondrous things of God, just like I'm prophesying to you now, that general category of prophecy. And what they do is this is in fulfillment of a specific scripture related to a specific period of time. And and we get to see that. It reads this way. Um, not being drunk with wine, but rather fulfillment of Joel 2, it says, And in the last days, note that phrase, It shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants in those days, I'll pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Not be drunk and whatever, they're, they're prophesying here near fulfillment of what's happening. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. <clears throat> now we covered other aspects to this, but let me just call, oh, wait, wait, verse 22. This one's important. <laughs> uh, this is the interpretation of signs and wonders. Men of Israel, the audience there, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. So signs by nature, you come across a stop sign and it points to a reality that you are supposed to do. <laughs> it speaks to you, points to something else. Uh, same way that the tabernacle pointed to Christ dwelling with us in, in his presence. Signs point to something else. That's what signs do. Wonders, miracles, they point to what? They, they point to the preaching of Christ. They, they are here to emphasize and to show that Christ has come. More on that in a second. Let me just say timing. We hear in the last days. Now, <clears throat> I think many have, have been taught about this and, and don't, haven't been taught well about this. <clears throat> in this time period, we see references in the New Testament to the last days. Now, if you believe that the last days that Peter's talking about here extends to our days, if it's the last days, some people interpret, maybe many people interpret as the last days of human history. Apparently that go for 2000 years. I don't know how that makes sense. But if we are in the last days as Peter is talking about, then no matter what, where you're at, you must believe that the, the sign gifts, as they're normally called, healing and these sorts of miracles are normative for today. You must believe that. There's no way around it. They're for this period of time, the last days. But we should not consider that to the end of the earth. The last days of the end of the earth, the end of the world. That's not, that's not the case at all. What is, what is the last days happening? Well, it's the last days of the old covenant. The old covenant is coming to a close in Christ Jesus. The new covenant has dawned so that John and the rest of the apostles can talk about the, the overlap of the ages. The old age before Christ is, is about to come to a cataclysmic end in the destruction of Jerusalem. Last days of the old covenant fulfilled in, within a generation. But the new covenant has already dawned. This new time that goes to the end of the world this time, has the, the dawn has risen. Christ has risen. There's a whole new period of history that has come such that during these last days of the old covenant, there would be extraordinary signs and testimony to the work of Christ, beginning with Christ. I mean, John the Baptist didn't have any of these signs and wonders, though he's probably the most powerful prophet, according to Jesus, that ever existed. Yet he didn't have any of those. These things came on with Christ to testify that he's the Messiah. And then in these period of the last days, it's to show the, that much, lots, maybe most of the Old Testament is being fulfilled in their midst right here and there. It's an extraordinary period of time, different than many other periods of time in history. We live well after the wake of that wave where we've actually experienced uh, more. And even in the New Testament period, they, they begin to direct us elsewhere. I'll stop there because I need to abbreviate my comments as I'm looking at time. 
Now, there's a time period of the last days of the Old Covenant where these things are normative. So it shouldn't be any surprise to us that <clears throat> these things occur again and again and again. But they always, as you, I'll go have, say, just encourage you to study all these signs and see what's happening among them. Well, it's one eight is being fulfilled. Jerusalem, they fall. Judea, Samaria, all these signs fall and miracles, tongues, stuff like that. We'll see here in a minute in Samaria. And then we'll see that happen with Cornelius when we start to get to an example of the ends of the earth and so forth. And we'll see it tied to this, not the order of our salvation, but like the, what has happened in history. There's a particular order of redemption. And this is an extraordinary piece that says that the kingdom of God has come upon them. So here's the second part. If timing's one, one part to help you understand signs and wonders and why you've never healed somebody from a sick bed or something like that, uh, why, why you don't perform miracles the same way that Jesus does and, and why it's not normative today. Well, the time period aspect is one. The other aspect is that signs point to the coming of Christ's kingdom. Now, I just encourage you, if you have any Bible app, you can type in kingdom and just look through all the occurrences of kingdom in the New Testament. You'd be surprised at it. <clears throat> we usually talk about the gospel of Jesus. Well, in the gospels, typically it's the gospel of the kingdom is what's being preached. And what we see, I'll just give you one example. This is Luke eleven twenty. is the witness of the church is about Christ and his kingdom, which has come. So you'll read in like Luke eleven twenty. If this is Jesus talking, because they were accusing him of, of casting out demons by Beelzebub. He says, no. He says, but rather, if I, by the finger of God, uh, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He did, right? So the kingdom of God has come to earth. That, that's the point. The, the point is to show that the eternal kingdom of Christ, which Daniel 7, we showed, was prophesied. And Jesus earned, therefore he can say, go into all nations, proclaim the gospel, baptize them and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you because I have all power in heaven and on earth. He, through the church, causes the kingdom to go forth and even even into the world beyond beyond the physical location of the church such that at the end of time uh, we will see a progressive over the course of time unfolding of how the kingdom as it were invades the world and that the kingdom of satan is overthrown demons coming out and not being uh uh, having authority and power over people shows that Jesus' kingdom overthrows them. It shows that here, in a, in a very tangible way, we see that the kingdom of Christ has come in force. It's actually powerful in this world so that it will reign. And so as we preach the gospel, as we live faithfully, as we disciple our children uh, we will see progressively, though there'll be dips and stuff like that. I think we're in a dip, as it were, related to where we're at societally. What we will see is the kingdom of Satan being driven out of the world. 
the the commission in the garden of Adam to make the whole world subject to God through man's dominion. That is that is what's being worked out in Acts and in our lives. And that's why the gospel has gone forth and conquered the world for 2000 years and it will continue to do so. And so our proclamation is Christ is king. Bow to him. Serve him. Satan's kingdom is overthrown. He is lost and will continue to lose. Be bold in your witness for Christ. Let me just say one last thing. We have a a wonderful phrase here. The result of these things. Verse 8. So there was much joy in the city. Much joy. The result of the word going forth is that the kingdom comes physically into into people, as it were, physically, really, I should say, probably, really into people, such that we are transferred, as we learned in Colossians, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We enter into the kingdom, even in our lives, and and that brings glorious joy. It's it's the joy of salvation that has come to the city. And that makes one glad even externally. It makes us happy people. And this kind of joy is uh, a great word, indomitable. It cannot be overcome or conquered because it is the fruit of the Spirit within us. Something that cannot be removed or taken away, although at times it can be quenched. You should ask yourself, am I joyful? Like if you look past your last month, am I a joyful person to be around him? Is it coming from me? We learn in the famous Galatians passage, chapter five, about the fruits of the spirit that Paul makes plain that even within Christians, there's still a war going on in us such that we might succumb and live contrary to our calling and might succumb to the temptations of the flesh. And really the result of that being dominated by our sin or, or, or really giving way and, and allowing our wills to be bent by our sin to, to do, uh, present ourselves as, as members to, to corruption or slaves to corruption, as we'll read in Romans next week. We are really here confronted with the fact that joy is something that, that should uh, be a part of our culture. If we are sour people, if we're uh, doom and gloom, then we are not keeping in step with the Spirit. We actually have to put down uh, our authentic feelings (laughs) and tell it, no, you're sinning. No, you cannot whine about what's going on. You must be joyful. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say, rejoice. You can't command people's affections. He does. Everywhere. Joy. You can actually live into that. It's wonderfully wonderfully freeing to know that we have been so set free from sin and real, real, um, real despair that we can cultivate by the Spirit Joy in our hearts and in our dispositions. Amazing. People often try to do 
just try to cope and to get by. That's not the Christian worldview. Christian worldview is one that actually says it's the truth of the gospel is so good and so real that it can make me happy even while I lament. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 or 6. I always forget. Now, so if you're not exuding joy, let me just encourage you. Keep in step with the Spirit by obeying and believing the word, believing and obeying the word. Those who are faithful to Christ and feel God's smile upon you as you do so can't help but be like an overflowing spring of joy. Where there is unfaithfulness in your life, don't be surprised that that fountain turns sour. It is something that is not joyful. Where you're unfaithful, you will not have any desire to be joyful. It, it, it will flee you like a dream in the night. Let us set our face to believe the gospel and to live in light of it. And that's where ju- true joy comes from.